This is an ABC podcast. One moment in particular sticks in my mind. And that's when an animal just started jumping and doing backflips. Like, oh, I didn't know kangaroos could do that. So whenever I needed to go pee or something else, you'd have to, like, scan for cars. Uh, uh, uh. I was just about to ask someone close by if these were piranha. That's when I decided, I'm like, oh, I'm going to catch it and then I'm going to throw it out. Knowing it probably wasn't the smartest idea, but you just don't ever expect it to happen to you. Ah, oh, the glorious outdoors and the wonder of nature, eh? Well, today on Off Track, we have the latest instalment in our occasional series of incident reports, where listeners from all over the world file occupational health and safety paperwork that documents their true field work fails. Jones and starting us off today is Rebecca Spindler who now works for Bush Heritage but in previous iterations of her career was working in the Pantanal. Now the Pantanal is a massive area of wetland that's mostly in Brazil smack bang in the middle of South America so think tropical heat and in the wet season 80% of it is underwater so yeah every insect you can imagine though it was actually something much bigger that Rebecca was after and this story I'm filing under the label Bitten by Science. I heard you were after stories about being bitten. This is more about being nibbled on. A long time ago I was working in the Pantanal with some of the best carnivore scientists in the world but gosh it was fun. I had a few genuine fails, which include disturbing a killer bee nest, falling over almost everything that was there and a few things that weren't, getting stung and bitten by every invertebrate in the area. What we were trying to do was capture jaguars to collar them and understand their movements across the landscapes. We had scientists of many kinds, park rangers, a cook, dog handlers that owned and trained dogs specially to detect jaguars for us. It was a rainy season in the Pantanal and that's the best time to look for jags because they stay up in the dry areas which are relatively small when it's raining for four hours a day every day for four months. Theoretically they're easier to catch because they're in these small little areas. The field team would get up and ride horses from 4am each day to try and beat the heat. We'd get out the dogs, we'd trot along next to us at a gentle pace until they caught the smell of a jag. Handlers would find the track, judge whether it was a new track and if the jaguar might still be in the area and if we had a chance of finding it. If they gave the go-ahead, the dogs would just take off, just race through the bush. It was our job to keep up with the team and find the jag. One day in particular, where we were out in the forest, it got so dense that we just had to leave the horses behind and go on foot to follow the dogs, running behind the dogs, stopping every now and then to listen because they would just race right ahead of us so we had to figure out which direction they'd gone in. Every now and then, the person at the front of the pack would tell us just to all stop. We had to be absolutely silent and keep still so that we could find the direction of the dogs. I mentioned it was the wet season, so running meant quite a lot of slipping, wading and even swimming. One moment in particular it sticks in my mind. It was so hot from running through the bush and I'd zipped off the bottom of my pants, exposing the bottom of my legs, which were red, raw and bloody. We had to stop in the middle of a small creek for quite a few minutes. I was trying not to pant from the running, being as quiet as I could, listening for the faint barks as they bounced off many of the trees in this forest. I had sort of given up and glanced down to see what there was in the 
river to find that there were medium-sized fish tidying up my new bites. I also had a larger scar from a fall the week before when I was running beside a pool, bad girl. I was just about to ask someone close by if these were piranha and if we should be concerned about me causing a feeding frenzy, no one would have been surprised, when the call came to keep running. Ten minutes later we stopped in what looked like exactly the same stream with exactly the same fish. This time they were ready. The fish made a beeline for me and without getting my speciation chart out or asking any one of the colleagues for their opinion, I broke the silence, leapt out of the water and ran to the nearest high point. I turned around to find 12 men staring at me incredulously for breaking the silence. Did I not understand the rules? Of course, when I tell this story, the fish are always piranha. But in reality, I guess we'll never know. Nibbles in the Rain is what I'm going to call this next story from wildlife photographer Nicholas, who goes by Laraco on Instagram and is well worth a follow. So here's a bit of a funny story. Uh, two weeks ago, we decided to go overnight hiking with one of my best friends. The weather had been awesome all week. So we packed and got everything ready for the weekend. And of course, the day of the trip, the weather forecast changed a little bit. We went into Lamington National Park. The rain did actually hold off, so we were pretty happy about that. And uh, arrived at our bush camp late afternoon, set up, had dinner, and then the rain started getting stronger, so we just secured the camp and started sleeping. And so if you've been camping before, you know that when it's rainy and windy, the tent's moving around. And as I'm sleeping, I'm feeling the tent hitting against me when there is bursts of wind and I'm not thinking twice about it. But a bit later in the night, I felt something quite strong on my leg and I was like, oh, the, the wind's really picked up. Anyway, turn around, keep on sleeping. And a little bit later, I actually felt something walk across my face. That's when I just jumped up in the dark and I was like, there's definitely something in my tent. And I grabbed my phone, which was closer to me than my headlights. And as I turned the flashlight on, I remember clearly it was 23 minutes past midnight. It was raining a lot outside, the wind was howling. And here I am with my flashlight on my phone, but I can't see anything in the tent. So I start moving my sleeping mat. And that's when an animal just started jumping and doing backflips. I was so tired and still confused and dazed. The first thing that came to mind was like, oh, what's the big cane toad doing there? I was like, no, that's not a cane toad. And a few seconds later, this rather large bush rat jumps on my sleeping mat and just stares at me. And I was like, mm, this is going to be interesting getting you out. The rat is freaking out, doing laps around my tiny little hiking tent. So I opened the entry of the tent and moved to the side a little bit, hoping that the rat would just run out. But it's freaking out, going everywhere but out there. It actually starts chewing one side of the tent, runs back towards me. That's when I decide I'm like, I'm going to catch it and then I'm going to throw it out. So I take my beanie off and using my beanie, I pounce on the rat and I manage to catch it. But then as I did that, my thumb touched the button on my phone and it turned off the flashlight. So here I am in the pitch dark with one rat in my left hand and no way to actually one-handed turn the light back on on my phones. So I just decided to let the rat go. It was even more freaked out, running even faster. I opened the tent even bigger. And I tried to really push myself to the side and like sort of give him space to run out. 
but he just decided to go right next to the first hole he started making and literally chewed his way out of my tent. Which I was like, actually, that's not my tent, that's my friend's tent. After this very chaotic few minutes, I started thinking about how did it get in, what, what happened here? That's when I looked up and pretty much where my leg was, straight above, was a huge hole. It had chewed its way through the roof of the tent. Afterwards, the next morning, when the light came up, I realized there was at least 10 holes in the tent. He had started chewing some of my camera pouches. The weird thing is that there was only one item of food that was well secured in my tent, but he could have easily chewed there. He did not touch that. He just ate plastic. So many of the stories you send me here at Off Track are funny, mostly in retrospect, because you all come out okay in the end, right? Well, sometimes the accidents that happen in the bush don't quite end so cleanly. Kerry Lush is actually a fellow broadcaster for the ABC, and she runs a station called Chowla near Renmark in the Riverland in South Australia. And she actually got dobbed in for this story by a friend of hers named Sue, who said that Kerry is an incredibly resilient woman with a story about being in the bush, alone and eight months pregnant. It was March 2019. I was about seven and a half, eight months pregnant and um, with our third child and I was you know trying to keep myself fit and so every day I'd take the dogs for a walk and I would generally do this same track uh, each day along what's called Woolshed Creek and it's one of these creeks that depending on the the level of the Murray it may have water in may not so at this period it had quite a bit of water in it so it was quite nice to walk along and uh, there'd often be big, I don't know, mobs of pelicans, big flocks of pelicans. So it was really quite a beautiful spot to walk along and a track that I'd walked along many times before. We had this amazing little dog, Dougal, who... He was a bit of a bit, sir. I think we think he was sort of a Maltese Shih Tzu, but he could have had a bit of terrier in him as well. When we got Dougal, I was pregnant with our second daughter and uh, he just became my best little buddy. He is just such a character of a dog. So this day I went off um, and our other little dog, Daisy, was uh, came as well. So she was only about 18 months old. And I had thought in the past, you know, these dogs are only little things and we have a lot of wedgetail eagles and kites and hawks and all of those sorts of birds of prey and I had worried in the past that maybe you know one day one might swoop down and take these little dogs thinking they were a rabbit or something like that um so anyway back to this day this morning uh I headed off for a walk in the morning and um yeah, Dougal at my heels as usual, Daisy running around like a excited puppy and one of the work dogs was off as well so he decided he'd come with us as well. Uh, so we walked walked out and uh, along our track and well Daisy, the, the other little dog and the work dog, they scooted off and I kept walking with Dougal and I got to the point where I normally turn around and came back and I could still hear these other two dogs yapping. So I thought, oh, I better go see what 
what's going on. So I walked back up there and they had swum the creek and chased a kangaroo across the creek. Uh, so this little white fluffy, not even a fully grown dog, a daisy who's a poodle cross, sorry, a schmoodle, Maltese Shih Tzu poodle. Um, had swum the creek, chased this massive kangaroo across the creek with Scooby, the number one work dog. And they were on the other side of this creek. Not attacking, but really tormenting, you know, just yapping at it and um, just giving it a hard time. Then so Dougal, who was at my feet, decided he'd swim across the creek as well and uh, get in on, on the action. And so off he went. He swam across there and then I was calling, just none of the dogs would come back to me. Uh, and, then I, and then they were still yapping and carrying on and then Dougal disappeared. Daisy and Scooby were still barking at this poor kangaroo on the other side of the creek and I had to get them away from it. So here I was, seven and a half, eight months pregnant fully clothed and I swam the creek to try and save the kangaroo and save the dogs. So I swam across knowing it probably wasn't the smartest idea but by this stage the kangaroo was pretty agitated and it was a fairly big one. I'm, I'm not short, I'm about 5'9", 5'8", 5'9", and yeah it was near my size and I you know, I was just going through my mind was I can't let this kangaroo attack me with this big pregnant belly and I had to sort of worry about the the baby as well. So I'm with the stick there holding the, trying to hold the kangaroo at bay and reach in and grab this other little dog that just wasn't going to give in. And then while I was trying to do that, Dougal popped up from under the water. I had sort of hoped in the back of my mind that maybe he'd given up and run home. But no, he sort of floated to the top and I had heard in the past about kangaroos drowning dogs. My friend's mum lost a dog in the ocean to a kangaroo and so I knew it was possible. So there I was with um, one dog under my arm, yapping, trying to get to the kangaroo and the other little dog dead on my lap. Um, So... Yeah, it was pretty horrendous. It was, as I said, he was my best little mate. And, um, yeah, I just sort of sat on the the side of the creek there for a long time, sort of wailing, I guess. Um, somehow, I can't even... I can't remember how I did it. I think I must have then swum back across the creek. Gosh, isn't that funny? I can't even remember what I did. Because I'd left my phone on the other side of the creek my husband had sort of left home when I'd said goodbye to him when I was heading off for my walk he was heading out to the back of our property and I knew that there were patches where he'd get phone service so I just had to keep bombarding him with voicemails until um, he got into service and you know all the messages would come through then we took all the dogs home uh, and then left the poor kangaroo to its own devices so uh, yeah it was one of those things that um, yeah it was fairly traumatic and um, didn't I guess I haven't really realized how much it 
has affected me, but I'm yeah, I'm, I miss my little dog. And some experiences out there in the field can leave their mark on you for a long time. Maybe even give you a new nickname. Hi, my name's Francesca, and this particular fieldwork fail occurred when I was working on two agricultural development projects based in Laos. And we had three provinces that we worked in in the north that were really close to where we were based and there was one province in the south that was much further to get to it took about two days in the car i said i would drive with the team to savannah get this province in the south i drove with my three core members of my team who spoke very limited english and i spoke very limited lao and on the first day i felt pretty sick I wasn't eating very much, I felt pretty nauseous. And we started the second day of driving and I felt really sick on the second day. I didn't feel any better. And we arrived in Savannica that night and I went to try and eat a little bit of food and I just spent the whole night vomiting it up. Thankfully, I was in a room on my own, but by the looks of my team's faces the next morning, they must have been able to hear me being sick. So I knew I obviously had food poisoning, but I told my team I was okay and I was ready to go to the field the next day. So off we went out to the field, drove out to the village, and as soon as we got there, I found where the squat toilet was, and I was able to time quite nicely that I would start a survey off and start the data collection, and then I would be able to leave, go to the squat toilet, vomit, and then come back in time for the end of the survey, sign everything off, make sure we were happy with it, and then start a new one. So it actually worked relatively well. Until, of course, I woke up on the floor of the squat toilet. And if any of you have ever been to a squat toilet, you know that's not somewhere where you want to wake up. I realized I must have fainted and I wasn't really sure how long I'd been out for. So I walked outside and they'd obviously been waiting for me for a while. My team asked if I was okay. I said I was fine and then fainted soon after. So I woke up in a hospital bed in this little village hospital and eventually the team and I decided that we would drive back to the city and go to the hospital there. And every time I went back to Savannakat and to that particular village, all of the farmers would come out and say Hongnam, which is a toilet in Lao. And so it wasn't necessarily the name I wanted to make for myself in my first proper field visit, but it's the name I did make for myself. My name is Stuart Nicholl, and for a few years now I've been studying the biology of echidnas. In 1996, we began working on a grazing property in the Tasmanian Southern Midlands, and over the next 18 years we tagged 280 echidnas on this property. So to find our radio tracked echidnas, we'd drive slowly around the property in a four-wheel drive ute, and listen for the transmitters. About 18 months after we started working at the property, the owners put in a new fencing system. Some of these fences were very long, and perhaps a kilometre or more between the gates. And they were electric fences, quite high-powered electric fences. Now, this was a bit of a nuisance, because if you're on one side of a fence and you saw an echidna on the other side, it probably would disappear by the time you'd gone the long way around. However, the property manager showed us how to cross the electric fence, 
The passenger in the vehicle will get out and carefully place his foot, well insulated with thick rubber sole on the top strand of the fence, push all the strands down and stand on it while you carefully drove across the fence. On one memorable occasion, we had an overseas postdoc who had been working with us for a couple of months. She said she'd do it this time. Unfortunately, she took her foot off the wires before the ute had cleared the fence, and one wire was picked up by the tyre and wrapped around the axle. We could hear a crack, crack, crack as the fence discharged through the truck. We got out very carefully. The only way to untangle the wire was to remove the tyre. So, wearing a pair of heavy leather gloves, lay on the ground and slid the jack into place. As I did this, it started to rain. Try to minimise my contact with the increasingly wet ground and holding the jack handle in an increasingly wet leather glove, I started jacking up the four-wheel drive. My companions were able to hear from my regular exclamations exactly when the fence was pulsing. When the wheel was eventually off the ground, I had to undo six wheel nuts. I was able to do some of it with my foot, but some of it had to be done by hand, with the inevitable exclamations from me and the increasing amusement of everyone else. Once the wheel was off, the wire was untangled fairly easily, and I was able to refit the wheel painlessly. And then we resumed the echidna hunt. Filing that one under, it's a shocker. Steve Halligan sent in this story from the 1970s when he was working for the Roads Department in WA. His job was to search the landscape for places where road building supplies could be found, you know, gravel, things like that. So he spent a lot of time in the bush. This story moves further north up to uh, Weibo Station. It's about 90 kilometres north of Leonora. So it's Spinifex country and you just got to watch where you walk. So you don't go jumping over clumps of glass. Before you walk around a clump, you just have a good look as to what's there. But, of course, I'm young and stupid, tired at the end of the day. So jumped over a clump of Spinifex. So there's the first rule broken. And what did I see while I was mid-air? A Joe Blake on the other side. And I thought, uh-oh, this don't look good. As soon as I landed, I just froze. And the reaction from the snake was not immediate. And I thought, thank the lucky stars. I had a good look at the snake. I thought it was a quarter, um, which is not good news. My heart rate, I don't know, would have pushed a hospital monitor off the scale, I think. It was pounding like nothing. Then the snake lifted it off the ground. Uh, whether it was investigating me, I don't know, or whether it was in a strike pose, but my heart rate just went up another 100. The whole time I could have a good look at it. It was an amazing colour scheme, and that allowed me to have a good identifier. And when I was back in Kalgoorlie, went to the library and I had to look, and yes, that was what was looking at me. This whole time, though, and it was probably, I don't know, 20 seconds or so, the snake was lifted up, uh, and if I just flinched uh, a merest muscle, I think I was a goner. So my mind was doing mental calcs of saying, okay, in the worst case scenario, how long and where could I get the flying doctor to come in? We didn't have a radio, so we were cactus. It was about 20 kilometres to Weibo Homestead, but no guarantee they would be home, uh, might be able to operate their radio, and anyway, the airstrip wouldn't allow the flying doctor to land at dark. You know, this would be darkness by the time they get there. 
90 kilometres back to Leonora. They have a nursing post there uh, and they had an airstrip that I think was an all-weather airstrip, so I'm somewhat confident they could land at the dark. Uh, so here I was going through all these mental calculations. Nothing was coming in my mind about dire consequences. It was just, how am I going to survive? After this 20 seconds or so, the snake puts its head down and ever so slowly moves off sideways. And of course, my heart rate then comes back to somewhere down to about 180. That's the closest I've ever come to being bitten. I've seen a lot of snakes in my working life, but this one was a tad too close. See ya. Thank you to all the researchers, walkers, workers and listeners who sent in stories of mishaps out in the field. You can email us at any time, offtrack at abc.net.au. I'm Ann Jones, and remember, meet me here at the same time next time with a satellite phone and a snake bite kit because that's when I'll take you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.